Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. So if tomorrow technology would disappear, what does your day look like? How would you spend it? What would you do? Who would you be with? What kinds of activities would you include in your life more of? And then the question is, like, the things that give you joy and pleasure, when is the last time you did them? It could be as simple as enjoying a cup of coffee by a window. And that sounds so simple and you're like, duh, but which one of us is ever drinking tea, a beverage, a water, and just sitting there and not looking at our phones? It isn't about being perfect. It's about being better. Hello, my name is Dr. Stephanie Stima, and I host expert discussions with thought leaders in all facets of health, including nutrition, fitness, hormones, stress management, performance, recovery, longevity, health span, and energy production. On this show, we discuss complex science, but then we also alchemize it into actionable everyday living. The ultimate goal with the show is to assist you in making informed decisions about your health and to catapult you into being the hero in your own life. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today we are talking about stress, resilience, and how we can buffer ourselves and become stronger even in the face of crisis. My guest today is Dr. Sue Pharma. She's a board-certified psychiatrist and the first medical director and attending psychiatrist at the World Trade Center Mental Health Program. Her first book, Practical Optimism, examines how some people survive and even thrive despite profound challenge and how we can all optimize the things that we have control over while buffering ourselves from stress. I wanted to have her on the show because we get a lot of requests for people to come on and talk about mindset. This is the evidence-based practical toolkit that you all have been waiting for. We talk about how to process our emotions. What are some of the hallmarks of problem solving? We talk about how we can begin to take pride in our work and our capacity. We talk about proficiency, so building self-confidence. These are, of course, you might be seeing a theme here, some of the things that many women have some difficulty with. How we can cut off the mental clutter, ward off worry, take back your time and be present in the moment. We talk about FOMO and JOMO, and of course, how we can start to cultivate a better community through the art of making friendships and the different types of friendships that there are. I really enjoyed this conversation uh, with Sue. After we stopped talking, we actually, uh, after we stopped recording, we ended up talking for another 30 minutes, which was awesome. She's the friend I never knew I had. So really great conversation. And I think that you're going to really get a lot out of this, whether you struggle with regulating your own emotions and your responses to things. If you feel overwhelmed a lot, so you're tired and wired at night, you're always constantly in worry, you're going to find something here for everyone. So please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Sue Varma. 
don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk. And my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres-ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot, as I have been doing, with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. One of my goals this year is to make it my best year ever with my skin. And one of the ways that I'm doing that is with the Bond Charge Red Light Neck and Chest Mask. Wrinkles, acne, scarring, skin roughness, loss of collagen and elastin happen in the face and in the neck and the décolletage area on our chest where the skin is very thin and susceptible to skin damage. I think at this point, we're all pretty good about putting sunscreen on our face, but so many of us miss the neck and the chest area too. I use the Bond Charge neck and chest mask daily for about 10 minutes in the morning while I'm checking emails. Their red and near-infrared light waves together penetrate up to 5 to 10 centimeters below the skin surface. The red light reaches the skin's top layers, and then NIR light targets the deeper tissues without UV exposure, and that's going to help reduce the fine lines, wrinkles, and to help ramp up collagen and elastin production. So I want you to head over and have your best skin with me this year. Go to bondcharge.com forward slash better. That's B-E-T-T-E-R and use the discount code better at checkout. And that's going to give you 15% off your entire cart. Dr. Sue Varma, I am thrilled to welcome you to the better show. Welcome. Thank you. It's so great to meet you. And you, and let me first congratulate you on this book, Practical Optimism. It I read, I've read through the whole thing, and there's a lot of proposals that the podcast gets in terms of, hey, we have this mindset book that we'd like to that we'd like to come on and talk about, and we reject most of them. And when this one came across the desk, it was an immediate yes. And I'm oh, so wow. happy, so happy that we did because you really do blend. I would say Eastern and Western philosophy, there's a lot of evidence-based, you know, I really like meaty science-based protocols and, and, and reasons and justifications for why things are being suggested and you do that in spades. So yeah, so congratulations on the book and I want to just jump right in if that's okay with you. Thank you. That means so much to hear. You know, it's like, it's so wonderful when you have other scientists, physicians, researchers, people who themselves are doing just amazing work in the space and can appreciate because it's like that delicate balance of you want science, but you also want tangible and you want storytelling and you want people to be able to feel inspired, you know, to, so that means so much to hear you say that. So excited to, to dive into it all with you. 
Awesome. Well, let's first start with just a definition. The, the name of the book, Practical um, Optimism, let's define what that is and how that contrasts with maybe something uh, that we've been seeing more and more in sort of the online space and even in the mental health space, which is I would maybe categorize it like, you know, toxic positivity, like it's totally okay, anytime, just brush it off. So let's talk about what practical optimism is, what it's rooted in, and then maybe contrast that with some of the other, we'll call it maybe pop psychology, and maybe that's a more uh, appropriate term for some of this toxic positivity that we're seeing now. Absolutely. So, you know, optimism in and of itself is defined as somebody expecting and hoping to have a positive outcome in a situation. And some people are naturally adept. We call these dispositional optimists who are naturally born with a glass half full outlook. But what practical optimism does is it actually helps you turn positive outlooks into positive outcomes through skill set, action set, in addition to mindset. So it gives you, it equips you with tools, whether it be emotional regulation skills, problem solving skills, being able to anticipate obstacles and plan for them. So there's everything in this book is actionable and tangible, but it also validates the human experience because so much of toxic positivity says, look on the bright side, but it doesn't do two things. It doesn't acknowledge the pain, the suffering, the disappointment, the grief that comes with being human because none of us will leave this world without any of that. And also it then equips you with things that you can implement today. So practical optimism says, I hear you, I see you, I validate your pain and suffering. Let's sit with that. And then when you're ready, I'm here to support you. What would you like to do? Let's brainstorm together. So you always feel as if you've got somebody by your side, whether it's me in the form of this book, whether it's your therapist that you might have introduced practical optimism to, whether it's your tribe or board of advisors in your life, mentors, or even one person that can help keep you accountable to this practice because that's what it is. Practical optimism is a practice just like yoga, a sport, learning a new language. Some days it's a five-minute practice, other days it's longer. One of the things I took from it, and I was thinking a lot of Man's Search for Meaning, the book by Viktor Frankl, and, and I think you actually, one of the the title quotes in one of the chapters was was from him, was that it's not necessarily about bouncing back from adversity, it's more thriving in spite of it or in the face of it. Would you agree with that? Yes. Yes, absolutely. I'm so glad that you brought that up because that was such a central point and that, you know, when I first got interested in this work, it was chancing upon it. I was one of my first jobs after residency was I was recruited to be medical director of this 9-11 program and treating people who survived great adversity, trauma, tragedy, physical illnesses, loss, death. I mean, we had never seen anything like that. Still haven't, you know, on, on U.S. soil, at least. And the death and de- the devastation, and I said, you know, who am I to, I'm, n- I'm no expert in this, no, no one really was. And I learned a lot about resilience, and through that I learned about optimism, because optimism was one of the key features of resilience. So resilience is about bouncing back from adversity, and nothing wrong with that. And we've spent so much of the last few decades focused on trauma and how do we b- bounce back, and we want that. But optimism being a feature of it says, all right, we're going to go through this. Let, let's take that for granted. And then how do we find meaning in suffering, if you will? 
And you talk about these eight pillars, and I'll just say that I really appreciate the alliteration. They're all they all start with P. <laughs> Good on you there. I always I always appreciate a well thought out alliteration. But I want to actually jump to pillar two, which is processing emotions. And I think that I wanted to start here because I think that this is so. This is a cornerstone or a central tenant, I think, for at least for female health in terms of what I see in in, in my community. So many women. We have been taught that emotions are a weakness, that we have to, you know, just punch it out, ignore how we're feeling. And then, of course, it manifests and it displays it's like you can't get rid of the emotion. So it will manifest and it will uh, sort of show up in other in other verticals in our lives. So you talk about this idea of like naming it, claiming it, taming it and reframing it. So can we walk through those steps in terms of how we can become maybe more emotionally literate? Absolutely. You know, and I see this a lot in my practice that I have work with, you know, men and women of all ages, you know, successful and intellectual and accomplished in their lives. But sometimes there are blind spots, you know, I have them. And even though this is my profession, when it comes to knowing ourselves, it, it can be hard because we're not provided emotional literacy from a young age, right? So naming it is about recognizing, number one, what is the trigger that set you off? And a lot of times it's hard because people are just powering through the day, whether it's work and family, and then it isn't until the night when their head hits the pillow that all the things that happen in the day start coming back to them. Or it manifests in the form of insomnia, or it manifests in the form of anxiety, bowel, bladder symptoms, frequent urination, IBS, headaches, clenched jaw, clenched fist, tension in the head and, and in the shoulders. So it's helpful to go back in your day and say every day, you know, whether it's in the form of a journal, uh, journaling, there's so much scientific benefit about it. 15 minutes, you can write anything you want. You can keep a worry diary and we'll get into that. But being able to know the antecedent to the thing that made you feel this way, because a lot of times people will come in, they say, I'm feeling depressed and anxious. And then we really need to unpack it because maybe the more immediate cause is obvious. I lost my job. I had a breakup. But then we see that it's a series of things. So the more granular you can get, we know that people who are very granular, even when they've had suicide attempts, but if it was connected to a trigger, somehow we think that that's healthier because we're like, oh, if this was a problem that caused this really low thinking, and if we can fix the problem or change the way we relate to it, which, which is what we talk about in reframing, we can have great success. So naming the trigger then claiming it, where in your body do you feel it? Where is it causing you pain and disturbance? How is it manifesting? Taming it by writing in the journal, doing a two-minute meditation if that's all you have time for. And it has to be on a regular basis because a lot of times patients will say, I did your meditation, it's not working. And I'm like, okay, well, if your anxiety is a nine out of a 10, 10 being the worst, it's not helping you there. It's more of a preventative measure. For sometimes it's people under guidance, under prescription, maybe taking medication, Medication's not for everybody. There's a lot of side effects, a lot of risks and benefits that need to be weighed. So taming it is like the meat of, I give people tons of samples of ways to calm it, to calm the acute inflammation. And then in time, I'm not saying in the midst of a crisis, you're going to be able to access the reframing. But as someone who worked with people of not just 9-11 trauma, but all kind of trauma, I realized that the reframing, that is where all the money's at. If I was going to say the one thing you can learn to do and I learned this in my own therapy, is can you create some objective space, some neutral space between you and the event? And in time say, all right, this was a really, really crappy situation. Was there any silver lining? How am I going to feel about this five years from now? What would I tell a friend? Was there any benefit at all to this situation? What have I learned? 
And if you can't do that, even just asking yourself, all right, what is the utility in me harboring this anger, this resentment? So when you can find nothing else, no benefit, okay, but then what is the harm of holding on to the negative emotion? So these are four naming, claiming, taming, reframing, simple things that I want people to start using immediately. And even just practicing with something that's like very low stakes, you know, someone didn't return your phone call. Okay. Not the biggest thing in the world, but that's the perfect time to start practicing it. Yeah. And I think some of these questions, when these self-directed questions also can force us or redirect us to slow down a little bit because the brain, (laughs) at least I can say at least my brain wants to go to, oh, it's the worst thing ever. My husband, you know, no longer loves me. I'm no longer, you know, a worthy doctor. Nobody wants to listen to me. I go to sort of these extremes sometimes. And I think that these questions, what, what is the utility here? Where is it feel? Where is it in my body? How can I, where's the silver lining? Some of these things, just the slowing down in trying to answer answer that, it maybe it's just enough to bring that prefrontal cortex back online because we can just tend to yes. be very limbic, right? It's just very like, well, yes. I guess I'm the worst and I guess everyone's going to leave me and everyone has seen that I'm a fraud and there we go. Totally. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes for somebody, it might even be when you talk about slowing down, like distraction and going for a walk. And I'm a big believer, like I have found that like in very busy days or stressful days, making that a non-negotiable because the idea of optic flow, like when you're walking, you have to look left and right. And at least in like urban areas that you don't get hit by a car, but it takes you outside of your own head in terms of the rumination because you can't really do the rumination and the walking at the same time unless you're like alone. But even then you're, you're taken outside of your head. And so the default mode network, which is always just on overdrive, And when you're not doing a task, you're perseverating and you're ruminating. And we know that there's a very strong link between rumination and depression and pessimism and in rare cases, even suicide. So that's like the super dark side of it. But in general, you do not want to allow yourself, I think, to ruminate or fester beyond, you know, there's no number on it. But for me, I think like 15 to 20 minutes. And if you're on this cycle and you're having a loop, you know, obviously, if it's severe, you want to do this under the guidance of a therapist to say, what do I do to break that cycle? For some people, it's, you know, putting cold ice on their neck, a pack, it might be submerging their face, their wrists, their neck, exposing it. And that invokes the parasympathetic nervous system, which then lowers your heart rate, because that's what sometimes this is about is just the autonomic, the sympathetic overdrive of go, 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 or immediately going, getting very triggered very easily. Um, And even if it's not the big T of trauma, like life-threatening, the small T is all the small disappointments and losses that they they stack up. So it's important. It's kind of like the way you clean. You clean your car, you get your car detailed, you you know, you you may invest in routine cleaning of your home. I I think of a lot of this as a, a cleaning and a maintenance, if you will. Yeah. And it like, you know, you were saying it's a skill. So it's not necessarily going to come naturally to us, which is where the utility of a book like this in terms of teaching us how to identify our emotions, naming and then eventually reframing it can be very useful. What is the difference, do you think, between emotional processing and emotional regulation? You you distinguish between these two in the book, and I would love for you to expand on that. Yes. So in emotional processing, it is the work of being aware of what's happening. And it's more about attunement, the recognition of the, what emotions are, how they serve us, their, their information. They're not facts and to be able to separate that. 
And then the next pillar of problem solving is the recognition that at any given time, we are contending with a battle on two fronts. One is the real world events that are causing us strife. And then it's the internal message making, meaning making that is often faulty and flawed. So when you talked about jumping to worst case scenario, catastrophizing, assuming the worst, um, negative filtering, these are all cognitive distortions that we do. So that's the processing part of it. But then the problem solving with emotional regulation is, is now using that information and using, throwing at it every technique that you know. And that's the emotional regulation part of it. So it, it builds on the awareness. It's the actionable component, if you will, the actionable arm. One is, you know, the awareness, the uh, attunement to your feelings, knowing the triggers. And then the other one is kind of the internal problem solving. And then when you can regulate your emotions, you're more clear headed. And for me, sometimes this comes even from sleeping. So if I am in the midst of something and it happens, I, I say nothing good happens after 9 p.m. because that's when couples fight more or you may feel helpless. You're, you're, you're tired. You're bogged down by the day. Even of all the decisions you've had to make, there is decision fatigue is real. You can't solve the problem. You start totally, doom scrolling totally. and, and you're down yes. in some rabbit hole about the election and Middle East. And then you're like, oh no, the yes. whole world is coming to yes. an end. Yeah. The world is coming to an end or my career is coming to, to an end because look at all these fabulous people doing amazing things. And, right, and then you right. can't do anything, right? Next thing you know, right. it's one in the morning and you're like, what did I do? So the problem solving part is like, okay, what is the actionable component? Now that we've managed our emotions, now that we're clear headed and rational about it, what are some steps that we can do to exert impact on the actual environment? Does it mean asking for help? Does it mean seeking mentorship? Does it mean seeking guidance? Does it mean having a confrontation? You know, hopefully a nice one with somebody. So that's the difference. The processing is more awareness. And then the regulation is the internal problem solving, which is still only half of problem solving. The other half of problem solving is now I'm no longer acutely inflamed. I'm in a rational state of mind. And then troubleshooting the way you would anything, you know, not just your own problems. Because when you're so in it, you're angry, you want to tell someone to F off, that's not going to help you. And keeping the end in mind. So even if you are really angry at someone to say, what is my end goal? Am I trying to preserve the relationship here? If that's the case, then how can I act in court in accordance with that? Yeah, I think as a society, generally, there's such a huge discount to what our emotions are telling us. And in so many ways, it's our stamp, right? It can be a clue to maybe our the stories and the narratives, as you, as you mentioned, that we are still telling ourselves. And, you know, we were sort of coming into this problem solving step that you talk about in the book. But I think when you are able to start noticing your initial emotional reactions, I think that that can be a bit of a tell. It can be a sign for where there needs to be a bit more love, a bit more grace, a bit more attention. You mentioned ruminating uh, and sort of being in these emotional loops. Are there any other patterns maybe that you've garnered in your clinical experience that, that reveals whether there may be some unresolved emotions or any tells, if you will, where someone mm -hmm. may need to pay attention? Yes. So, you know, the tells could be, the tells tell a lot in a lot of ways, right? And, and the one thing I want people to do is to not get attached to the tells, like look at it as information of two things. One is, is there something I need more of in the environment? Is there something I need less of? So like, let's say you had an interaction with a friend or an acquaintance or coworker that rubbed you the wrong way, it doesn't mean that your emotions are facts, right? Like, I don't trust this person because that's something that might come up, right? Like something happened, they rubbed me the wrong way. I don't like them. I don't trust them. Well, there could be some accuracy to that. And maybe the truth then, or maybe the solve then is, 
you watch your back, you maintain a little distance from that person, you kind of watch them with a more careful eye. But that doesn't mean that they're horrible and nasty and that you can't form some kind of like polite relationship with them. So I think sometimes our emotions want us to cut ties, to run, to do something very extreme. And all I say is, hmm, something is coming up. Something is, it's kind of like stranger danger as a kid. Like something about this interaction with this person is making me feel unsafe and I don't like it. And we would tell our children, you know what? It's better to be safe than sorry. Act on it, be firm about it and, and name your boundaries. As adults, for the most part, you know, let's say you're, it's daylight, you're in a very safe setting. You're not worried necessarily about getting abducted in that moment, but there's something that is setting off your alarm for threat. And when you're feeling hypervigilant, it could mean two things, because people who have had trauma in the past of any proportion will often get triggered and feel unsafe. Does it mean that the environment is unsafe or that the person or the situation is unsafe? Sometimes. But sometimes it means that that trigger and alarm bell is going off because of your past history. So then the answer becomes two things. If you have enough awareness to say, you know what, I'm realizing that I'm easily getting triggered in situations that are not unsafe. You know, like one thing I would see this a lot with trauma survivors is they would say, like, how do I know something like this, this horrific thing is not going to happen again to me tomorrow? And that is where, you know, I initially got stumped because I was like, you're right. Like, you do need to remain hypervigilant on some level, right? Because cranes fall from the sky all the time. People are walking on the street, they get hit by something. So, of course, but that's where the question comes in about the utility is, if I thought that my ceiling was going to cave every day, I would never leave the house or I would never be able to exist in the house. Right. So asking yourself and being able to separate, is this me? Is this my fear? for kind of want to say no reason, but it can kind of go both ways. But to your question about how do you know if something is getting set off, one common emotion I see that is very telling is shame. And shame doesn't necessarily mean that you have something to be ashamed about. For me, it's like trying to understand, hmm, that's interesting, I would tell a patient, say more about that. And then that gives me a whole insight into like a window into why is there the shame? Because shame is the least productive and useful emotion of all. While something like guilt often says, hmm, I did something wrong, interesting, I can do something about it. Let me, let me maybe take responsibility and correct it. Whereas shame turns inward. It's like, I don't want anyone to see me. And then you end up perseverating. You go internal. You never actually end up engaging in any pro-social behavior by like apologizing and making things right. And then you just go down a, a path internally of helplessness, hopelessness, depression, and shame is when it's left, you know, not dealt with, it can lead to sort of the more darker path. So shame is very telling and interesting for me. And it's something that I want to help people with. And I talk about this in the pride chapter is to apply self-compassion as the bomb to change that inward down, inward and downward and upward and outward. Yeah, that's where that was the next uh, question that I had. Let's jump to pride because I think that this is an interesting one. Again, for women to hear specifically, I think that we're often taught that we are not good enough, not pretty enough, not worthy enough, not capable. It's like always, we need to always, there's this always this moving target that we are trying to hit. And we often, whether it's an internally motivated or externally directed voice that's telling us you're not enough yet. If you just do this and then you do that, and it's like, well, now that you've done this, you can now here's the next step. So how can we 
challenge some of these negative thoughts. So I love the contrast between guilt and shame. So if we're having shame, how can we contrast that belief system that that's that's leading to some of these behaviors, these, you know, maladaptive maybe behaviors, and then and then develop a sense of self-compassion so that we can start to de- develop that pride or that intrinsic sense of self-worth. I think the first thing is even just being aware that there is a construct uh, in society that wants us to feel this way, right? Because whether it's consumer culture, it benefits somebody for women to think poorly of themselves, right? So if you understand that maybe there's something else, it's not all in your head, society doesn't make it easy, you're constantly fed images of what you need to look like, you know, it doesn't matter what age you are, like, I notice this a lot in my patients, you know, in their early 20s, you know, in terms of the cosmetic stuff, procedures that are going on, like, you know, I want to say maybe 20 or 30 years ago, it was something reserved as a sort of anti-aging tool. And now it's, everybody is like, I'm not happy with how I look. And so I have access. And while there's nothing wrong with that, for a lot of people, and also I think because we're doing sort of more remote work where we see ourselves all day long on Zoom, you know, plastic surgeons will tell you that the number of procedures have gone up. So it's very interesting in telling that no matter how youthful and supple and beautiful you normally are, nobody is satisfied. And there is a whole industry that is profiting from that. So you have to have awareness that there are other systems that are that are going on that are making you feel this way. And then to beef up your, your internal self sense of self-worth to be able to contend with it. And it's really hard. It's like if you're getting images everywhere you go, yeah. you have to be aware of that that you're being fed and you're fighting a battle every single day, no matter how old you are. You know, like I want to say that maybe there's some, some segment of the population that is like social media was never a thing for us. You know, I'm not on technology, doesn't affect me, but for most everybody else, it does, it does, you you know, it does affect you. So how pride differs. And I was big on this from self-esteem. So I define pride as self-compassion and that's an intrinsic sense of self-worth that is based on, I am human. I deserve love. That's it. It is a fact. It is, it is as simple as your existence. On the other hand, self-esteem is based on how you do in the world, w- how you accomplish what you, what, what you did, what you didn't achieve. And if you don't do well on a test, if you don't get a promotion, if your career is not succeeding, if you didn't meet the societal milestones, you end up feeling your self-esteem is really low. So I don't love that. I don't want to give my sense of my self-esteem or sense of self-worth to anyone to decide. And so that's why I realized I need something even more basic, not contingent upon anything in the outside world. And I started seeing this with my patients. Self-compassion and the research done by Kristen Neff really spoke to me because it has these three components to it. It first says mindful observation of what you're experiencing. So it brings in a little bit of that emotional processing, like being aware of what your thoughts are. And then having acceptance around those thoughts. And something that I always say to my patients, think of your thoughts as luggage on an airport baggage carousel. You would look at other people's luggage, but you're not taking it home. You're aware of it. You're observing it. You're noticing it. You're paying attention. Maybe you're even making remarks about how silly some of the baggage looks, how damaged, how beautiful, how luxurious. Whatever the thoughts are, you're not taking you're not taking them home. Creating space and distance from the thoughts and then accepting them. So I feel like crap right now because I've gained five pounds. This really sucks. I'm just making that up. Or I didn't get this promotion that I've been trying for a year. Like this, this is really crappy. And then the common humanity part, which is I'm not alone. Other people have gained weight, other fill in the blank. Other people have not gotten the promotion at their job. Other people have failed in this respect. Am I the only one? Because that's what shame does is shame has you believe 
that you're alone and it isolates you because you don't ask help. You think you're so rotten to the core. I mean, that's an extreme. Some people feel like they're so rotten to their core. And when it gets to that point, then I say you have to seek professional help, even if it's just one session, because one session can do wonders. If you need more, absolutely, that's something you talk about. But therapy had been so beneficial and so eye-opening for me in my own journey as a person, as a professional. It helped me relate to my patients better. Um, and, I, and I'm a big believer in it. You know, people say, oh, well, you're a psychiatrist. You can write prescription for meds. That, that's kind of the last thing I do when I meet somebody. It's not the first. And, and it has its role. It can be very beneficial. But it, I look at it just as one piece of a comprehensive treatment plan. But this journey of self-discovery is a must, is a must for everybody. And self-compassion is a must. And there's so much science behind it. You know, when we look at mothers or parents that did a self-compassion exercise, it doesn't take long. It could be 15 minutes. Th these are parents who had children with disabilities or other hardships and challenges, and they're in an extreme caregiving role, and they felt less stressed as a result of doing these self-compassion exercises just for a few weeks. Students who filled math exams, and they did self-compassion exercise, ended up beating the kids that were in the control. Not only did they do better, but they, they beat the control. And that's because you don't perseverate. You don't ruminate. You don't say, beat yourself up. You're like, you know what? It happened. I feel like crap. I'm not alone. Other people go through this. Now what? So self-compassion and a healthy sense of pride gives you a path forward. And that's the practical part of the optimism is, now what? And helps you move and gives you a real plan and forces you to put a plan in place. I love that. I'm in my mid-40s and I have never felt more energized. I am training five times a week. I'm getting in three bike rides every single week. I recently reached a personal best of 15 neutral grip pull-ups, and I could have literally done it the next day if I wanted to. And I wanted to share with you what I've been doing that is making me feel so great. One of the cornerstones of my daily health regimen is Timeline Nutrition's MitoPure. MitoPure captures a pure form of the molecule urolithin A. This is a postbiotic nutrient that re-energizes your mitochondria, which are the cells that are responsible for making energy and widely considered a cornerstone of longevity. Research has also shown that individuals supplementing with urolithin A experience an increase in muscle strength and endurance without altering their diet or exercise routines, which is why I probably got the 15 PB, the personal best. I recorded a podcast with Dr. Anurag Singh, the scientist who discovered urolithin A, and after our conversation, I started taking it as a recovery tool after my weightlifting sessions. I take it as a supplement, but it also comes in powder form, which is really great for travel. And they've also now combined it with a protein powder. So you can kind of get the two for one deal there. And I've also been using their skincare line, which helps with the skin's collagen and elastin matrix, making the skin look plump and juicy and helping reduce the appearance of fine lines and wrinkles. Right now, Timeline Nutrition is offering my Bettys 10% off at TimelineNutrition.com forward slash better. That's T-I-M-E-L-I-N-E-N-U-T-R-I-T-I-O-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R. Use code better to get 10% off. Just building on that mindful observation, what are, just you know, for some action items for our listeners, what are some ways that we can create distance. So you mentioned these self-compassion exercises. Are these like sentence stem completions? Like what, what is an example of a self-compassion exercise that someone who's listening is like, yeah, I, I probably need some of this. Like what are some of the things that someone might invoke or, or start doing in their own lives? 
Yeah. So the first thing I would say, like, again, going to the journaling, because I can't talk about it enough. It sounds so maybe silly or juvenile or woo-woo, but there are so much studies behind the, the benefit of writing down on paper what you're going through. It decreases the number of colds and infections people have per year. It can um, expedite wound healing after like a biopsy or a surgery. And so there's real science behind it. And this can be a self-compassion exercise where you say to yourself, okay, you write the situation down. You know, I failed. You know, I tried and I failed. If you tried, if you didn't try, you just write that you failed. Maybe you failed because you didn't try. So that's fine too. Maybe you're beating yourself up because you didn't have enough time to prepare. So write that down. You know, I I missed a deadline because of a de- I missed an opportunity. I couldn't get there. Let's say there was this a really amazing conference or networking event that you didn't get to sign up on time because you're too busy, you procrastinated, and it was a once in a lifetime, and you're going to meet the most amazing superstar idol of yours. And you're like, that could have been a game changer for me. I could have networked. I could have met some really amazing people. And you might beat yourself up. And maybe you're saying to yourself, you're going down a, a spiral. I'm not responsible. I'm, I procrastinate. I put things off. As a result of putting things off, I end up missing amazing opportunities. Why can't I get my act together? I'm just a mess. My life is a mess. My life is a disaster. I'm just never going to make it. And so writing down this kind of like downward spiral and these negative thoughts and then asking yourself, then you take a step back, write down all the negative thoughts. I'm a loser. I hate myself. And then what are the emotions? This is like a thought log. What are the emotions that go along with it? So the situation is we've picked, I didn't sign up for an event, important event on time that could have been game changing. The thoughts are, I'm a loser. I procrastinate. I can't do anything right. I'm never going to succeed. And then the emotions are, I feel anxious. My heart's raising. I feel rejected. I feel like a loser or, you know, sort of anxious and sad. And then challenging those thoughts. So you notice you use the word never. I'm never going to succeed. That's called all or nothing thinking. So I have a list in that book of cognitive distortions. You're jumping to conclusions. Nothing will ever work out for me. You're fortune telling. You're discounting the positives. That's a big one. A lot of people in the midst of self-hate and self-loathing will completely discount. You know what? Yeah, I missed this event, but guess what? I go to every other event. I've been going to the same event five times in a row. This was the first time. So we end up just focusing on one negative aspect of the experience and forget of all the positive things that we have done. We discount them and we forget that we've done a lot of great stuff in our life. So the dis- the challenging of the distortions is a big part of it. What would you tell a friend? We're often more compassionate with our friends. How am I going to feel about this five years from now? You know what? Missing one conference one year, one time it's not going to change. So you could literally feel it because everyone has a different situation and scenario that makes them catastrophize and think that they're a loser. Identifying the emotions and then saying the common humanity, am I the only one who's never done this? Uh, Other people mess up too. And for sometimes like what what we call a thought log, for some people, it's not going to work. And for them, I say do something called progressive muscle relaxation, which is just getting out of your head. Sometimes someone's like, thank you. You're giving me all these great cognitive tools it's called cognitive restructuring, but they're like, right now I'm too deep in it. So I'm like, you know what? Don't even bother. Come back to it later. And so, you know, progressive muscle relaxation, which is closing your eyes and clenching and releasing muscle group by muscle group. You know, like, you know, I think there's like 14 or 16 main muscle groups, like your eyes and your shoulders and your fists, your quads, hamstrings, toes, and like 15 minutes or 20 minutes a day. And This is thought to invoke the relaxation response or the parasympathetic nervous system. For me, it's taking a hot bath. That's something I need every day, like 
before going to bed. And I feel literally like trouble's melting away. You know, we know that the role of hot water, like when women are in labor or birthing and pain. And there's something to be said that psychic pain gets read in the same part of the brain, thalamus, as physical pain, you know, when we get rejected. So there is something, you know, giving yourself physical comfort, soothing tea, a warm blanket, like it's not going to change your life, but these little warm, fuzzy moments that make you feel safe. For some people, it might be a weighted blanket, you know, how to feel safe within your body. For some people, it's taking a nap. I had a patient who was like, I get really dark thoughts at night. I'm a, I live alone. I'm sad. You know, I may call a friend. But then I, I just said to her, listen, what is the utility of staying up for four hours and crying? And it's going to take you to a dark place. And then for her going to bed at 8 p.m., those evenings helped. It's short-circuited. So you're not always going to be able to talk yourself out. So you're going to have a need to have a bunch of techniques to short-circuit the negative thinking. But the restructuring in the long run is going to help you the, the most. Being able to reframe through the cognitive challenges, the cognitive strategies, reframe the way you look at things. So I used to be someone who, you know, would beat myself up. And now, not that I don't, it's just a lot less frequent because it's now I've learned to immediately go to what are your distortions? What are you doing in the situation? How can I think of this another way? So it just brings, it makes it a little bit lighter. It doesn't make it go away completely. And I think it's it's also helpful to understand that we're probably neurologically wired to focus on the negative. So you could go to yeah. five conferences out of six and you'll focus on the one that you didn't go to and beat yourself up about it because that may have conferred in, you know, generations past to our ancestors, our foremothers and forefathers, you know, safety, right? Safety in the tribe or like identifying any type of threat would be a threat literally to potentially your survival. The other thing I, I, I like about the cognitive, the thought log that you were describing and like all the, like all the things that maybe prevented you from going to the conference, I think it's also important and I'm sure that you, well, I'll, I'll just present this and you can tell me what, what you think, is to also identify the obstacles and not as an excuse. Like maybe this year I couldn't get to the conference because I couldn't find childcare or childcare is too expensive and we're just not in the position this year to, you know, take the flight and the childcare and, you know, or what, you know, I'm just making up examples here. So what, you know, whatever the obstacles might have been, I think that's important and I identifying. And yes, I appreciate so much your last sentence, which was, you know, I, it's not that I don't beat myself up anymore, but it's just that I have a bit more of a balanced, it's almost like you've developed, or maybe you've just given more time to the opposing voice. So there's that voice that yeah. tells you that you are terrible and you're worthless and you are just a loser for not getting to this conference. And then there's another voice that's like, hey, but it's also really expensive and it's time away from my kids and it's, you know, in air fl airports and flights and disrupted circadian rhythms and all the other things. So you've, you've given a voice to the equal and opposing thought, which I think so many of us tend to like, it's already there, but we don't shine a light on it. We don't actually give it any, any attention. Exactly. And Stephanie, that's so, I'm so glad you said that because I, I think that it's really important that not just with the book talks to you about boosting optimism, but it also talks that we, in, in, like you said, equal and opposing force of pessimism needs to be quieted down. And we found, like studies have shown that it's not enough for someone to do optimism interventions or exercises. They also have to, at the same time, lower the pessimism. And that's what you're doing. Is that what you're saying? That yes, we're boosting the positive, but give that more voice that you have. Yeah, wonderful. 
Let's talk about being present. <laughs> We've sort of been talking a little bit about it, or maybe the lack of it with like the doom scrolling and, you know, kind of getting into your head maybe at the end of the day. In the book, you talk about something that, and maybe this word, this is a word that I'm trying to embody more and more as a continuously recovering type A type of personality is this idea of savoring. So you talk about this idea of savoring the moments you're in. And I just, ah, oh, there's just something about that word that gets me like savoring the moment. So can you expand a little bit about on how savoring the little everyday moments are the antidote potentially to the fear of missing out the FOMO. Uh, and you talk about FOMO and JOMO. So we can talk, we can talk a little bit about that as well. But talk a little bit about savoring what that means. How can we uh, do that in everyday life? Yes. So, you know, it's interesting, like, I think, first of all, with savoring, you have to recognize that what really, really, really brings you joy and comfort on a very basic level. So if tomorrow technology would disappear, what does your day look like? How would you spend it? What would you do? Who would you be with? What kinds of activities would you include in your life more of? And then the question is, like, the things that give you joy and pleasure, when is the last time you did them? Because so many of us are living for tomorrow that I, I really want to do this retreat. I want to do go on a silent meditation. I want to develop a gardening practice, you know, in my backyard. I want to learn how to cook. I want to bake bread. You know, one of my friends just got a pizza maker at home. Like, I want to do arts and crafts. I wish I could. I want to paint more. So pick one thing that gives you really that speaks to you, that just makes you so happy that in that moment, you feel a sense of flow and joy and mastery and you feel immersed in something. So it could be an activity. It could be painting. It could be sculpture, any, anything creative and artistic. It could be. Or it could be as simple as enjoying a cup of coffee by a window. And that sounds so simple and you're like, duh, but which one of us is ever drinking tea, a beverage, a, a, a water, and just sitting there and not looking at our phones? And so savoring is simply can be as simple as something that gives you some sensation, some, some like pleasure with the senses that does not involve you trying to multitask at the same time. So it, it can be as simple as that. And then if you have a favorite beverage, like I'm big on, I love the sun. And for me, there's nothing like it sounds so simple, but if I could get myself out for 10 minutes in the middle of a workday to be able to have the sun, the warmth on my face that feels beautiful. I love taking walks on the ocean. I love swimming in the ocean. And for me, that's when I'm like most at peace. I feel one, one with nature. I feel like I'm part of something bigger than myself. And those moments are necessary because what they do is they short circuit the rumination. They short circuit the self-absorbed thinking. We are all in our own heads all the time, all the time. We're either in our heads or on our phone. And because of our phone, we're also back in our heads. And, right, and self-absorption right. in the narcissist culture and the selfie generation, I mean, it's true. You know, we're all like many of us, the high achiever, hustler, like, you know, I mean, in a good way, working hard, building. But everything about our culture teaches us to keep going, to not stop, to think about tomorrow, to improve. And I'm, this book is about self-improvement, right? So it's not like I'm not about that. But the, the, the improvement is be here, be now, enjoy, you know, and I think one of my friends, we joke because our, you know, we go on vacation together as a family and, you know, the wives are friends, the husbands are friends and me and her husband always tell my friend, let's just go and do nothing and, and sit at a sunset when we're on vacation. And she's like, I don't understand. Like I sit here and I'm like, what am I supposed to do? Right. I took her to a spa for the first time. We both got massages and then I, we were using the, the hot sauna and, you know, all the nice hot tubs and 
after 15 minutes, she's like, Sue, I had to get out. Like, I, this is not my thing. Like, I, I don't like being alone with my thoughts. Like, I'm very uncomfortable in this situation. I never. So for some people, slowing down, it's foreign to them. And so making a practice, 10 minutes, once a day, wherever you can be, to be in the moment, to taste, to eat, candles, scent, aroma, something that lights you up and makes you kind of forget about yourself. I think that's so important. And your friend is probably a beautiful archetype for many of the listeners of the show. And I would say I struggled with this for years as well. It was very hard for me to do nothing. So on if I had finished all my work, I was like, all right, so I guess now I'm going to rearrange the house, I'm going to clean and I'm going to do all the laundry and all the you know, that's how I would quote unquote, relax. Yes, yes. Yeah. And that's, and you know, there's truth to that, you know, and so we can't beat ourselves up over it like that. That is real life. You know, so no one is saying like, look, if you get to do that beautiful retreat and spa, that might only be reality for some people once a year, right? But like savoring can be free, it can be simple and cheap and accessible, and it should be. So think about what is the equivalent of drinking tea by a window, drinking, sipping coffee on a patio. That is so beautiful. For me, this sounds so cheesy, but when the weather is nice and I feel that light breeze, whether it's a spring or in the fall, the crispness and the coldness coming in the fall it says, wow, beauty, nature, we're walking into change, we're walking into a slower period. Yeah. And the spring and the summer, I think of rebirth of life, a rejuvenation, and that feeling of the breeze hitting my skin, my face, it makes me feel so grateful and so alive. So tuning into the beauty around you that already exists, that costs you nothing other than your awareness, Yeah, make time for it. Yeah. And, you know, for, for me, it's slowing down my eating. That's sort of, you know, you mentioned it, but it's like, if I'm having a steak, I'm going to slow down and savor the steak or, you know, whatever meal it is. I just happen to really enjoy steak. So if I'm having yeah. a steak, oh, awesome. you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to really enjoy that. And I'm going to try to, you know, think about the flavors and the fats and the seasoning and, the, you know, all that kind of thing as well. So there is the cup of coffee or the tea by the window. There are many analogs to that. And I think part of the part of the trick, if you will, around being present, and you talk about this in the book, and I wanted to expand on it a little here, is this idea of overcoming mental fatigue. So we've mentioned it a couple times already, and this is something that I will often ask myself. It's like, am I really annoyed at my husband or am I just tired? You know, so is there, you know, is there, can we talk about maybe the physical rest, the the sensory rest, and maybe yes. even the social, you know, breaks as well? Like the, uh, sometimes we call them fat, like, can we do a social fast? Can we fast from Instagram yes. for a day? You know, talk a little bit about oh, yes. each of those. Yes. So, you know, Many of us are, let's say, if there's an online component of the work that we do for education, some people have businesses online, and we don't realize that how draining looking at a screen is, or if you're working on a computer all day, and the light, whatever it might be, there's something, un if you ask me, unnatural about it, and yet I do it because that's my work, right? Like if mm -hmm. I'm talking to patients on Zoom or trying to educate people on Instagram, whatever it might be, I'm very, have to be plugged in. But I'm also aware that I feel as if it's depleting my battery every day, you know? So it's like just just having, you know, when they say having apps on drains the battery, it's the same thing of like, the more you're multitasking, the more apps you have on your soft, you know, on your your RAM, if you will. It, it's, there are things in the background in our mind that we're not even aware of. This is why processing your emotions are so important, that they're stripping you away of your energy, chipping away when you're not even aware of it on a subconscious level, 5%, 5%, 5%. Let's say you have an unresolved fight with your spouse and you haven't talked to them. There's something called broken heart syndrome and it's real. You know, I've seen it in my own life that 
that you can have cardiac problems. Like, you know, when I remember my mom and dad, they were married 45 years, amazing relationship, each other's best friends. And, you know, she, my mom, which is, you know, she's South Asian. South Asian women are known to have small coronary arteries, a variety of things. She was vegetarian, didn't smoke, didn't drink, but had heart disease. And I remember they got into a, uh, an argument and didn't talk to each other for maybe two or three days. And it was my mom's choice. She was like, I'm just so mad. And it was something very simple, but it was something she wanted to take a stance on. And she ended up having a heart attack. And, you know, whether or not my dad was a trigger of it, that's a whole other thing. But the point is that emotional stress, it was very interesting and telling. And I mean, I was a teenager at the time. I didn't know. And I don't blame him for it. And they were best friends in every capacity. But I was like, oh, my God, this emotional stuff, it's real. Like, it can have severe consequences. So, and I think because of like ethnicity and culture, women don't complain. They don't talk about their feelings. Like she was kind of stoic and very strong and like PhD and was like a leader in the community, a very tough person. So for her to have to admit and acknowledge vulnerability and to talk about her feelings and to say to my dad, you know, I know you made this decision, but I would wish you would make this other one. And this really hurts me. Like that was hard for her. So this is why, Mm. like, I think they call it like type B personality. So being able to express your emotion is so key. There was just on this broken heart syndrome, I think I was watching a documentary, is it Jane Goodall with the chimps? So she, I remember watching her and she was, she was, you know, following this, this, this tribe of, of, I I want to say chimpanzees. I might be wrong. It might've been, no, I think it was chimps. Anyway, so there was one chimp that didn't make it. So the mom had given birth to this child and then the chimpanzee didn't make it. And then the, you could see the mother like going to the baby and like trying to like wake it up and then curling up beside the baby. And, and then, you know, they videotape and then she ended up dying. Um, so the mother was like completely healthy, no problems, but then had this like devastating event in her life to see her, her offspring, you know, not make it. And like was trying to revive the, trying to revive the chimp. And then she herself just lay down beside the, 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 you know, the corpse and then also, uh, just died. So I think that there's, and you know, we have, we shared what, 98.99, something like that. Yes. Our DNA with, with, with monkeys. So I, I was very moved by that. And you've, we've seen, it's been illustrated in, in movies, you know, the, or it, we've seen it in real life. I've seen it in real life where the husband dies and then the, you know, the, the grandfather dies and the grandmother dies, you know, a month, two months later, something like that. Mm-hmm. So it is very real. And I think it's important for us to, you know, at least to be aware of, and, you know, with your mother, I think that so many of, I think so many of us, and just as a female, generally females, we, as you know, to your point, it's so hard for us to speak up and say, actually, this is very upsetting for me. It makes me feel this way. And what I, I see more often than not is the shutdown. You know, it's like, I have to give okay. you the silent treatment. I cannot talk. I cannot talk mm-hmm. about this. And I would say in the, in the vein of, you know, honesty and transparency, when I'm really upset and really activated by something, I also find it hard to communicate verbally. I find that my brain just wants to shut down my verbal communication mm-hmm. skills. And I, I'm like one word answers to two word sentences. And I have to really struggle to communicate exactly what's happening to me. And it's usually after I've said, I actually just need a break. Like I just need to calm down here so I can bring my brain back online. So I don't say or do something that I regret. And then kind of come back to the conversation when, you know, the, the, the charge, if you will, that, that sort of energetic charge Mm -hmm. has, has, has uh, dissipated somewhat. 
It's so interesting, you know, like I think for a lot of women, anger is really hard to do. And, you know, a lot of times people will say like, I end up crying, like shutting, like shutting down can be, you know, any number of things. It could be like getting so frustrated and feeling so helpless that you're like, I'm overwhelmed with thoughts, with emotion, with anger. And yet anger, for some reason, seems like one of the hardest emotions to access for some women. Like it's there. It just either it's not, you know, on a subconscious level, it's considered is this too powerful? Is this going to alienate the person I'm talking to? Take it, over am me. I going to feel? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Envelope yeah. me. And so a yeah. lot of times people like break down and cry. And I think crying is very therapeutic. I mean, as an aside from this, you know, when you're feeling very stressed out, give yourself, allow yourself a good cry. And, and then also it speaks to communication, you know, and sort of like old school, like I'm just thinking about old school family relationships, husband and wife, where women were just expected to take it, you know, and men are allowed to do whatever they want. And so, you know, going to couples therapy can be so helpful for a lot of couples of even if they have beautiful, healthy relationships, just to say, can we communicate better? And I see, I see so much, I mean, not to tune to my own horn, but the couples that I work with, when they come in, when they're motivated, okay, it, it, it takes a certain amount of like, sort of like, yes, there is a selection bias because there's some couples that are kind of already on the way out by the time they come to see you. And in that case, you might be helping them make a decision about how to amicably break up. And I feel like in those circumstances, like the goal in couples therapy isn't always to keep people together. Sometimes it is to help them come to the decision to separate in a very sort of, I guess, conscious uncoupling or whatever you want to call it, where they're aware and they do it in a very respectful way. And that they do it with with, they come to some sort of peace. And maybe sometimes people are afraid to go to couples therapy because they know that they will have to face really dark things in that room. And then they'll be faced to make a decision of whether to stay together or not. But when I see success is when there's a, a great degree of love and commitment, but they cannot communicate, their needs are not being met. And I see the beauty of each person talking and listening and empathizing and seeing because we're in the room and let's say the wife is talking for the first time ever the husband is like oh my god i get to hear you and listen to you almost from an objective point of view where i don't feel like i'm being attacked i'm just listening and oh i had no idea you felt this way or never really paid attention so you know sometimes if your couples feel like an impact at an impasse i'm you know i want to say that it's not just women i don't want to put all the burden and pressure on them that they can't express themselves because some can express themselves perfectly fine and their partner whoever that person is may not be receptive or defensive. One of my favorite books that I recommend to couples is John Gottman's work, The Seven Principles, Making Marriage Work, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, he talks about criticism, contempt, stonewalling, and defensiveness, and how when he sees this, when him and his wife, Julie, see this, these four traits, they can almost predict with like 95% certainty that the couple, the things are not going to work out. So, you know, just being very careful that we don't want to, I don't want to just blame women that I want to empower them to be able to ask for what they want to know what they want. Cause I see like, you know, when I work with couples that have problems, you know, in intimacy, a lot of times a woman will say, I don't know how to pleasure myself. So how am I going to educate him? So whether it be about pleasure, whether it be about intimacy, whether it be about knowing your body, knowing your emotions, you know, all of that kind of goes together is the more educated you are, the more you can bring your partner into the fold to say, I know you don't mean harm you know, when you do this, I can understand why you want to do this. At the same time, this is how I'm feeling. This is how you're making me feel. You know, I had a couple where the the husband wanted to go on a guy's trip and the wife hates those set of friends and they're the, you know, immature, drinking, passing out, you know, smoking, doing all sorts of things. And she's like, no, I'm not, you know, we need you at home. You're working a hundred hours a week. 
And that's not where I want you to be spending your one free weekend, you know? So it was an interesting conversation. And then it, it brought up a lot of things and they were able to get to a place where it felt win-win for both. But, you know, I'm a big proponent in any form of, of therapy. Sometimes having that neutral third-party listener can be really helpful. When we're thinking about the connections, either deepening the connections and cultivating belonging, let's say, what are some of the, you talk about conflict resolution in the book. So this might be a really great time to highlight that. So what are some of the ways that I don't want to say fight well, but mm-hmm. fight well, like how, how do we want to be, how do we want to be thinking about conflict resolution insofar as when you're no, this is the way that I like to think about it. It's like when you are no longer angry or when you are no longer upset, are you going to be proud of the way that you behaved? That's sort of the one thing that I'm always thinking of, you know, because I can, I can cry, I can shut down, I can do all the, you know, I'm sure I'm speaking for many people, like we can have a, a vast array of responses to any given situation. But once the emotional charge, we've metabolized that somewhat, and you look back on the disagreement, you look back on the conflict, can you be proud of the way that you showed up? So what are some of the ways that we can resolve conflict? Uh, or maybe mm-hmm. what I'm trying to ask is how can we adult? Like, how can we, how can we resolve conflict like adults? Yeah, that's so beautiful. I love the way you phrase it about being proud because yes, that's what, that's what the goal is. And I think it's by looking at a problem and not looking at your partner as the problem, looking at the problem as its own entity. There's you and the partner, and then you together are a joint force that's on the same team and you together are taking on the resolution of an outside third party issue like the third party is the problem because a lot of times what people do is they get so fixated and focused and they're like i'm feeling pain you sitting in front of me are the source of my pain and my pain will only be resolved if i fix you as a person as opposed to hey maybe the two of us are on the same team so for example like if you're struggling over childcare or you're struggling over uh, some regular big important chore in the house the default thinking is it's either me or you who's going to do it. And I would say, great, there are some circumstances where it is going to be either one or the other. But is there ever a situation in which it's something else? And, and so it requires two people to be creative and to think outside the box. So for example, let's say there is a situation where one party wants to go on a conference or a trip with friends in a partnership, right? And if you are lucky enough to have a grandparents nearby who can help with the childcare. I'm just giving examples because I realize that this is not for everybody. Somebody may say, I have no family nearby. I cannot afford childcare. Okay. Is there something really creative solution? All right. The kid, maybe your kids want to have a sleepover. Maybe this frees you up so that your partner can go on this trip. A lot of times people are like, no way, no how. I don't want you to go on this trip. It's not even about childcare. If that's the case, you know what? Then let's be transparent about it. Let's be honest about it. So a lot of times people will say, no, the dishes have to get done, but I want my partner to do them because they don't respect me. Great. Like the idea is, is it just the dishes or are you really fighting about something deeper? So there's always a concrete problem, the dishes, the childcare, but then there's a perpetual problem and that is the deeper underlying emotional feeling of being disrespected. And it's so key that we separate the two because if it's just about doing the dishes, me and you can solve that in five minutes. Who, who else do you have in the house that can do them, right? Is there a dishwasher? Like for me, it's now my you know preteen son where I'm like, okay, you're going to be doing the dishes and you're going to be doing the laundry or can I outsource that to an outside person? So I always use this example of like a three-legged race when, I don't know if people do that anymore, but when we were kids, that was a thing. And so you were tied to somebody, two, two out of the four legs, the inner legs, 
are tied. So you and this person are tied together and you have to make it to the other side. If this person is your teammate and if you end up handicapping them by, you know, taking out their free leg or taking out their arm, you are doing damage to the team. You're a single unit. And so by berating and kitchen sinking and character assassinating your partner, you have just damaged, ruined, taken out 50% of your team. And I'll give you an example. There was a couple that I was working with where the wife would wake up. She had to work an early shift at, at a hospital and she would wake up at like five in the morning and she, maybe this would make some noise in the bathroom. And then the husband was so pissed off. He's like, you know what? When she And, and they were both raising a young child, baby. And then the husband was like so pissed off that she would make noise when she would wake up and get ready in the morning. He's like, the days that she gets to go in late, I'm going to make noise. I'm going to show her that like how bad it is to be awakened. And I was like, that doesn't solve the problem. We need two healthy, well-rested adults to be able to take care of a child. You knocking out, you know, by keeping her awake. Now you're both awake. What did that solve? So being able to tag team and shift and say, you know what, I'm taking on this shift, whatever it is in life. I got you this weekend. What are you going to do for me next weekend? How can we resolve a problem that it doesn't have to be me or you? It could be us on the same team resolving an outside conflict. Because if you can't move past the perpetual, because sometimes we're stuck. We can't, we can't talk about the dishes and who's going to do them because that is a concrete problem because you feel unseen and unheard and there's resentment. And a lot of times when couples come to see me, there is years and years of built-in resentment, and it's often where one partner feels like the other person has completely taken them for granted, has put all childcare responsibilities on them, doesn't value them, doesn't appreciate them. And so the healing first begins. We can't even talk about who's going to do the dishes, the concrete level problem, until we resolve the deeper problems. And sometimes it takes a lot of time and effort. The other partner has to show, to show up and show consistent respect, probably by doing the dishes a thousand times before the other partner is like, okay you have now made it up to me. Now let's begin. Yeah. So it really depends person to person, but the team approach. But again, it's hard to come to if there's underlying bitterness. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but at least it should be simple. That's why for the last five years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in with water once a day, and it makes me feel energized, nourished, and ready to take on my workout. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and more. It is a powerfully healthy habit that is also powerfully simple. If there's one product that I had to recommend to elevate your health, being a supplement minimalist myself, it would be AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long and why they have been a sponsor of the podcast for so long. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2, as well as five free AG1 travel packs, which are a life send when you are on the road. With your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com forward slash Stephanie, that's D-R-I-N-K-A-G, the number one.com forward slash Stephanie. Check it out. Yeah, that, that story of the, I'm going to wake up early, just so you know how it feels. My grandmother used to say, and I don't know if people even say this anymore, but it's like, it's like cutting off your nose to spite your face, right? It's like, you're, you're, yes, you're both, yes. you're both losing. You know? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's such a great, thank you for saying that. I love that expression. A hundred percent. Yeah. Have you ever seen the YouTube video? It's not about the nail. 
where there's a woman she no. has oh my okay so i'll send it to you after our recording i'll put it in the show notes too for our listeners to watch it is really uh such a beautiful exemplary conversation like a typical you might say you know t- typical conversation between a man and a woman where she's trying to she has a, a nail in her forehead and she's like you know it's just so achy and it hurts and all my sweaters are snagged and he's like well just take the nail out like he jumps right to the problem he jumps right to the well just you have a nail in your head that's why you feel this way and she's like <laughs> oh can you just listen to me i just want to express myself you know and then she and he's like okay like go and express yourself and then you know she's like what feels so achy and all my you know all my sweaters are ruined and everything so it's 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 a great it's a great example of sometimes the mismatch and i'm obviously we're talking about like a heterosexual couple there can be many other types of pairings but typically i'll say and i'm painting broad strokes here, but a man will want to jump to fixing the problem without maybe stopping to hear the pain or the strife or the discomfort that the female might be, you know, going through. So she sometimes just wants to talk about the problem before jumping to fixing it. And while it's like, it's humorous in terms of like, you know, male and female interaction, I actually took a lot of that out as a parent, because sometimes my child will come home and something's happened at school. And I, in the beginning, I would catch myself saying, it's okay. No, you're fine. That's a, and rather than saying, gosh, that must've been really awful for you. They didn't pick you for the basketball team. Like, how did that make you feel? Rather than validating the feelings first before jumping yes. to like correction and maybe even a little bit of that toxic, like, it's okay. You're fine. Like, no, don't, don't worry. You know, cause you, I'm doing that more out of my own, like wanting to feel okay yes. rather than you know, wanting to hear my son. So I think that 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 video was, you know, it's funny, but it also sort of highlights this idea of when we are interacting with people as a way to connect with them, first, they have to feel seen and heard and understood. And then maybe we can present, hey, listen, like, I totally get it. Why not? Like, you're totally busy, you come home late, but maybe could you just like empty out the dishwasher? If I run it, could you empty it? Like, could we dance? You know, like, can you lead and I'll yes. follow something like that? I love that. And that's so important. And I, I can't wait to see the video because it, it is really humorous. And, you know, and I think it's interesting because as, as someone who's hearing it for the first time, that example is interesting and extreme because it's like anyone watching it would be like, yeah, lady takes the nail out. Right. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. And so that's why they picked something to show like the guy's not crazy for what he's suggesting. And at the same time, she's not ready. She's not there yet. You know, and I see this a lot in the sort of heterosexual couples. And I see this also a lot with my own husband where I I noticed this when he's tired. And that's why I think it's so important to sometimes ask permission when you want to vent is to say, you know, do you have the bandwidth for it? Right? Because if it's been a long day, and he is tired, his reactions are going to be more like short, and it's going to be like the equivalent of just take the nail out of your head 100% like versus when he's well rested, he can listen for the emotional content about what I'm saying, you know, and a, and a lot of times with women, that's why I, I personally always feel so much more satisfied talking to other women because I feel like I can express my emotions and they're going to hear on two levels. What is Sue saying? What is upsetting her? What is bothering her? And give her a little bit of validation and support or like, oh, that must be so hard. Like, I can't even imagine what you went through. Like, I hear you, like I'm with you, but you're doing so great. And then let's say if I'm struggling or feeling overwhelmed and then say, you know, have you thought about these things have I have done and they have helped me? Like, what do you think about that? So we got to give people space. And that's something that takes skill, like active listening. And I talk about the benefits of it and how we live longer. 
the uh, people I think with active listener listeners in their life live on average like four years longer and there's less cognitive decline. So there's something really big about feeling supported. And if you even have one good friend that you can go deep with that can support you, that's like, I got your back and that just believes in you, you know, that doesn't try to shame you or humiliate you and be like, what's wrong with you? Because a lot of times people, it's, it's sad, but Maybe, you know, that whole, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Freud, like you get pleasure from seeing somebody else fall. And I feel like, you know, some people have a little bit of that where they're like, oh, things aren't working out for you. Tell me more. Like they're a little too happy about that. (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) Like they want to see, like they're, 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 they look up to you. They're proud of you. They're happy for you. But at the same time, maybe not, you know, and it, it speaks to what they're going through in their life. So having someone who's really got your back and believes in you no matter what, and then can support you. I think the act of listening is a skill that we must all, like, you know, I, I think about the idea of like emotional first aid, that we all need that. We all need to be able to, because we are in the midst of a mental health crisis, we all need to be able to tune into people, you know, and and offer them a safe space. And then, of course, we're not going to be their therapist. They're going to need professional help if they need to. But I feel like these are the things that we can do as a community and as a society to help alleviate some of the mental health crisis. Of course, we need more practitioners. There's a lot of logistics involved, but what our part is, is to create safe spaces for people. And shout out to the German language for always having the exact right word. It's such a random thing, but it so poignantly expresses, you know, the th- some people really do take pleasure in, you know, we were, I was driving to the gym with my husband, the other day and on the highway on the way there, the other direction was all jammed. And I looked at him and I was like, what I'm feeling right now is Schadenfreude. <laughs> you know, it's oh like, I'm so, God, it's awesome. so funny. That word is so, so accurate. And just, just expanding. I love this, this, this expression, emotional first aid. I wrote it down here. You talk about supportive listening. So just kind of rounding out this discussion, you know, detect, reflect and act. Let's just, let's just, you know, put like to just to be thorough, talk about what that is as a, mm-hmm. as a friend, whether you're a parent, you know, you're a wife, you're a husband, what does supportive listening mean and how do we do it? Yes. So, you know, like I think, let's say if it is the child that's coming home and didn't make the basketball team and, you know, it's one thing if they say it in passing, but looking at their body language, like, are they quieter than usual? Are they sulking? Do they say like, I'm not really hungry tonight. No, thank you. I don't really want dinner or I don't want dessert. And you know that it's their favorite dessert and you're like, okay, something. So the detection really is honing in on what those clues are that they're not in a good emotional state right now, or it could have been something that they said. I feel really sad. I feel really rejected. I'm a loser. I'm not athletic. I didn't make it. Other kids made it. They were laughing at me. They're going to laugh at me. So any number, like people will give us a hundred clues if we're only willing to be receptive to them. And then to reflect, you know, to say like, I'm, I'm hearing that like this, this really meant a lot to you, you know, and you can say like, I, maybe I didn't realize it or I get it. I know how hard you worked. I can understand that for you, this would have meant something. So like, you know, somebody was telling me about their kid and they're like, my kid is not athletic at all. And they tried out for the basketball team and it would have meant something. And the coach told them, try out, they have a good chance. And then they didn't get it. And so, you know, are, what are you saying to yourself? You know, ask the, the child or the person, like as a result of this rejection, like what what message have you internalized? Now, if they're too young, they may not be able to answer this. But anyone sort of nine, 10 and above can say like, I don't know, like, um, what did this mean to you? this failure, you know, and they could have any number of things. If I got it, I would have felt I'm athletic. I would have felt accepted. I would have felt like I'm not that much of a loser when it comes to sports, or I would have been liked or getting on the basketball team would have immediately brought me nine or whatever, however many more friends, or 
I would have traveled with them. Like I see these friendships. Like I want like to really understanding what did that situation mean for them. And then the action part is going to be tailored towards what they're looking for, looking at their face. And sometimes it's just saying like, how can I offer you support right now? Like, let me know what would be most helpful. And then let's say someone's lost a parent, for example, you know, like I had a friend and she was another mom in the community that when my mom passed, you know, it's not something like, you know, in her tradition, like sitting Shiva and like bringing food to people, like that was something she did. And she didn't even ask me. She was like, I'm coming and like buzzed and came up and was like, here's some food. And I was like, oh, that's so awesome. Like, that's, that's so sweet. Like we're not even that close, but sometimes anticipating somebody's need because it's really hard to ask for help. And people talk about this. Like there's been studies on, we don't ask for help because we think we're going to be a burden and an imposition to somebody else. But the reality is other people actually feel good when you ask them. Yes. Whether or not they're going to come through is a different story. But like that's what we've lost in society is this being able to rely on other people. Like we have so many conveniences that like when your toilet isn't working, your sink is clogged, you're not calling a friend, a relative or a neighbor. You, We've got people for that now. And that's the problem is that we're losing. We used to rely like in, in a lot of communities, People, maybe because there's no other option, they rely on family predominantly for childcare. But what that does is really strengthen the bonds in some way. You know, mm-hmm. it may not be ideal. Maybe you say, I don't trust anyone in my family. No one lives around here. But we're losing that. We used to look out for one another and we don't. But in the action, be careful that you don't offer advice too quickly. One clever way is when you find out what, what the loss means to the person is maybe to help them brainstorm ideas that other ways those needs can get met. So for example, we didn't get to talk about FOMO, but in like with FOMO, what I say to people is when we're, when we're scrolling and when we see and hear things, for example, that woman, let's say, who didn't get to go to that conference that year, and she's seeing all these amazing photos of the event. Maybe it was at a really nice spa in Tucson, for example, and they're like, the weather was so great, and they were wearing nice outfits, and sisterhood and celebrating and learning and maybe they form bonds and they're going to have parties and get-togethers and I'm going to be left out. So I say, look, the underlying theme to me is learning, friendship, travel, right? And so in general, when you're scrolling and you're feeling bad and you feel like you're missing out, ask yourself, is it simply because you're comparing yourself and we're human and we do that a lot and we feel not good enough? Or is it giving you information that this is something you want in your life? So the kid who didn't get the basketball team, if they happen to say it's because I wanted to see myself as athletic, a sense of identity, if it was because of friendship, can we pivot and can we try option B and say, can we get your needs met? We just have to be creative. Great. Your birthday's coming up. Can I have a birthday? Can we have a birthday party and invite all those kids from the basketball team? Can we talk to the coach? Is there going to be another tryout later on? What can we do so that your underlying needs can still be met, but in a different way? And that's what practical optimists do. They're like, okay, plan A didn't work. B, C, D, all the way up to Z. They don't give up. They're persistent. I love that. And that, I think there's also, as you were talking, I was thinking about envy as well. That can also be kind of, you know, to the what we were talking about at the beginning, a tell. That can also be an indication when you are feeling, let's say you didn't go to the conference, you, you know, continuing this example, you're seeing all these people, nice outfits, it's beautiful weather, they're learning. That 
that envy that you might be feeling that's naming the emotion maybe is a, is a sign for you that maybe you do want to connect more with the attendees that were there. Maybe you do really value learning and, and the, the, the keynote or the speakers that were there are going to be able to provide some value and into your intellectual life as well. So the envy also, again, I think in society, we tend to say, oh, envy is so bad. We're not envious. We're just like, oh, yay, sisterhood, everyone, yay. And then, but really discounting that feeling when it can be a tell or a sign that you actually want yes. that. And same yes. same is true yes. on social media. You can see someone and be like, gosh, like she or he seems to have it all together. And maybe you feel envious, but maybe the things that they have are also some of the things that you value as well. So it's not necessarily yes. a bad thing yes. to be envious of someone. Just it's a, yes. it's a, it's a yes. tell. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it's a tell. And I would say, you know, to, to really look at your envy and, and, and take the time to understand it. Because I think because there's so much shame in experiencing envy, because nobody wants to admit it, even to themselves. No, I'm not envious. I love my body. I love the way that I look. You know, I love whatever. They don't want to, they don't want to name it and claim it for sure. But if you can, you can say, I'm envious of, right? And then list what you're envious of, you know, like, you are in amazing shape. Somebody may look at you and be like, I want that. I want to look like that. But at the same time, ask yourself, am I willing to put in the work and the energy and the sacrifice to do that? And that the problem is that's where most people get stuck because they're like, I want that end result, but they're not willing to do the work for it. And then I would say own it because if you're like, yeah, I would like that, but I'm not interested. Or like, let's say the person is envious, like I saw my friend be a keynote speaker. How come I wasn't asked? So the tell is, do you really want to be a keynote speaker? Are you willing to put in the time and the effort and marketing and the branding and the expertise and the learning? Great. Get ready for the journey. Roll up the sleeves. But understand that every pathway that you're envious of involves choices, work, and sacrifices. And are you okay with that? And if not, then move on. And if you're feeling envy for no apparent reason, and it's not because, and and, and maybe it's jealousy then instead of envy, like, or, or you know, there, there's like a distinction, but if it's simply because you don't want the other person to have it, that's a whole other thing. Because sometimes people are like, I don't want it, but I just don't want you to have it either. You know, it's not like I right. like people who are in different fields and they're never going to be the keynote speaker of a health and wellness conference because I don't know, they're in marketing and technology. Like it's not their thing, but they're just, they don't want to see other people happy. And that's where the pessimism is, is then look at the pessimism and say, because, you know, I knew someone many years ago who when good friends of hers or women that she knew when we were in our 20s and slowly, slowly people were getting peered off and getting engaged and getting married and she was approaching 30, 35 and she's like, that hasn't happened for me. A woman in, you know, Kansas is getting married. She'd be like very upset about it. And I was like, how is that relevant to you? The partner she met in Kansas was never going to be in your pool set. You live in New York. It's not right. your, like, it's not, it's not like it was one good option taken away from you. So then you're really upset about what let you know not my patient so if she was i would say let's look at that you know is it that you think that these things can't happen for you you're upset that they're happening for other people you feel left out like what is it and then how do we make it happen for you and if if you're just getting pleasure like what we talked about earlier from other people's pain then that's a whole different thing or you know or you have an inability to be happy for someone even if it's not taking something away from you that I find really, really hard because these, then these folks end up being unhappy in life. If they can't be happy for something, for someone else that had no impact or didn't mean any less for them. So I think that's something that we also need to look at as a society because we put so much pressure on people to succeed that 
we always feel less than. And so when somebody else has achieved or attained something, even if it's not from our bucket, we feel like, hey, how come this person got is moving up like the, the, as if they're levels and we're just right. not moving fast enough. Right. And I think that that says, speaks to friendships. You talk about the different types of friendships in the book. And I think the it's good to have an awareness that there are going to be a select few that are genuinely rooting for your success. And then there's going to be others, as you've been describing, that are going to be like, oh, something's not something's not going well. Tell me more. And they lean in. And then there's others, you know, who are, you know, quite the opposite, want or or wanting all of the, you know, all of the maladies and all of the bad things that can possibly um, happen to you. And I know that there are not to not that I believe in this, but I know that there are like my family, my husband's family is Italian. They have something called the evil eye or the malocchio. And then there's like the Greeks. I know that they have a similar, the mati, they call it. So there's always like, we have to protect ourselves from bad spirits and good spirits, people that are thinking about us. So it's, I think it's, I think it's important to just be aware that there's going to be some people who are genuinely rooting for you. Keep those very close. And then there's going to be others that are not. And that's, that's okay. And there can be yes. different levels of intimacy that you have with people. Yes. Yes. And you know, it's so interesting that every culture has their own version of that. Like in, like in India or like in Hindi, they say, Nazar ne jai. so like, like mm. sometimes you were told not to boast too much because yeah. you didn't want someone to look at you. And so it's funny because, you know, my parents as sort of scientific as they are, you know, I would notice my mom would say this to me and it was very interesting. And she told me this towards the end of her life. She's like, I never told you this but I'm so proud of you. And I never said this to you because I was afraid that that word would come across as boastful, you know, and I could Mm -hmm. tell that there was probably some superstition also behind it, you know, that we, she would always say, I'm blessed to have you and I'm blessed for the things, but would never say I'm proud of it, you know, Mm -hmm. so almost at this hubris and arrogance and like, you know, I know in like in Greek mythology and in a lot of different cultures, there's this idea that like, you show deference to, to the gods, you give respect to them, to somebody above you, you don't take you know, all the credit for everything you've done, you know, and then she would get into her religious and spiritual mode to be like, you know, we can thank God for what you've accomplished, but never in a boastful, prideful way. And I think the downside is that then maybe your kids wonder, like, is my mom really proud of me? Like, because she's never said it to me. Right? <laughs> right, right. But I knew, you know, I knew that she had her own like hangups. And so that was her way of saying it. But, but yeah, it's very interesting that there are going to be people And if you do find that person that's got your back, you know, I would say make the time because that's another thing I'm hearing is people are like, I'm just so busy, especially when you have young kids and a career. How do I make time for friendships? And I would say, you know, if you even have, you have to be intentional about it. And if you have even 10 minutes to make a call to a friend and say, hey, I've been thinking about you, I would love to catch up. Maybe give me a call on your commute home or if you're going for a walk. Like sometimes I end up calling people when I'm at the gym, like I'm on a treadmill and I'm like, I got five minutes, like I'm warming up, like can we, (laughs) and, or, you know, these weird built-in, I'm walking to this, to the subway. Do you have to, I have, I know it's going to take me 15 minutes to, to walk there. Can we, can we talk? You know, so building in these moments of, I call micro connections and they could be with strangers and they could be with friends, but you know, the barista, the dog walker, like these layers of built-in connection that we lost during the pandemic because we weren't talking to strangers and strangers give us so much more benefit in terms of our boost to our mental health and boost to our mood than we realize so if you have the opportunity to smile at someone, to make small conversation, which is lost because we're all on our devices, no one is making small talk with strangers these days, which is, again, why we are in the crisis, why a loneliness crisis and mental health crisis, it's because, duh, if you're on your device, you don't hang out with people, everything can be done online, ordering everything, you never leave the house, you're working from home, and they, and they know this, that for young people, 
working from home, working remotely, being like alone, they're losing the workplace friendships, which were so formative and transformative for many people. Yeah, yeah. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Uh, I do want to end by giving people the opportunity to find you, your work, uh, where um, people can buy the book, uh, I'm sure at every any good bookstore, but where can people find more about you and your work? Please feel free to plug it. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I'm so excited about Practical Optimism, the art, science, and practice of exceptional well-being. And you can buy this anywhere books are sold, you know, before February 20th. There's pre-order and afterwards it's everywhere where you can find it. I'm on, my website is www.drsuvarma, the word doctor, suvarma.com. And I'm most active on Instagram. So I would love for people, the word doctor, suvarma, to find me there. And I would love for them to tag me if they're doing any of these things, active listening. I talk about, you know, daily healthy habits, the four M's of mental health. I tell people to do meaningful engagement. We talked about mastery, movement, mindfulness, and kind of talked about all of it, but tag me when you do those in your daily life and and join and follow me. And thank you, Dr. Stephanie, so much for this opportunity. It was so great. I feel like I feel like I could talk to you forever. Like I've known you forever and I could talk to you forever. Same. The feeling is mutual. And I, I would say that the book is so robust that if you, when you do pick up the book for my listeners, just go through it chapter by chapter and just take one piece and implement it. Like this is a book I feel like you can come back to over many, many years as you refine some of your skills in that quest to becoming that practical optimist, because there is so much science and there's so many skill sets in there to acquire and master. So I like start small and then, you know, sort of let the, let the inertia sort of, the, you know, overcoming that, you know, inertia of starting. And then as you, and then as you're on your, on your journey, you know, adding more layer by layer, you know, time, a little bit by little bit. Amazing. Thank you. Okay. I want people to have this book by their bedside, nightstand, share it with friends, you know, develop accountability partners where they can say, you know, how's your practice going? How's your journey? Which pillar are you working on? And there's a quiz in the beginning of the book that helps you figure out, you know, where you where you stand in this journey and where you might want some more help. So while I tell people read all of them in sequence, you may find that you do that initially and then you come back based on this quiz or you may want to go directly to it. So really it's up to you, but I think all of us could benefit from all eight, at least knowing and having the foundation and then recognizing our own blind spots and what we want to pay more attention to. Wonderful. Well, I wish you all the success for this book. We will be releasing this conversation the week that it's published. Thank you so much again. It's just been a delight. Thank you so much. All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 